Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women. My name is Jen Grimmett, and with us today is Reverend Dr. Portia Rochelle, President of the Raleigh Apex NAACP and Local Clergy, speaking on the topic of Policies Affecting Black and Brown Mothers. Welcome, Reverend Rochelle. Thank you. Was wondering if you could share with our listeners a little bit about um, your background and the work you do, and particularly in the ways that brings you to speak on this topic. Yes, I am a local clergy pastor in the area, pastor small congregation, and I've also had the privilege of serving as president of the Raleigh Apex NAACP for 10 years. And the NAACP is a world-renowned advocate social rights organization. Mm -hmm. And there are several duties that I'll probably mention later that I cover. But my duty mostly is to carry out the uh, mission statement of the NAACP. And that mission is to ensure the political, educational, social, and economic equality of rights of all persons and to eliminate racial hatred and racial discrimination. And that covers several issues, and we have several steps that we use to follow to make sure that this happens. That is a very full mission statement. It sounds like that probably keeps you very busy. Very busy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank Early morning to late at night. Yes, yes, yes. Well, but you have to be dedicated to the movement to uh, be in this position. What are some of the things that you have enjoyed most about engaging in the work that you do? Most of the things that I've enjoyed most is uh, establishing leadership in the uh, different committees that the NAACP has established in the bylaws to carry out the mission. Uh, For example, the youth organization, the uh, health committee, legal redress, things of that nature. Uh, So we're concerned about the total person, not just one or two things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of going off of that, could you share a little bit, you know, and this is such a big question, but an overview of some policies that affect Black and brown mothers. A lot of the policies are the uh, the health policies. Mm-hmm. Policies that focus on uh, determinants of health that are often the critical underpinning of health inequities. For example, we have housing. We work uh, to try to help establish more affordable housing. The impact of living in an affordable house is very crucial. Mm-hmm. to black mothers. We have to deal with the health system and services, uh, having access to affordable health insurance, uh, medicine, access to mental health services. I don't have those statistics before me, but mental health seems to be rising all across the nation. Mm-hmm. And then we try to uh, work with organizations, the health programs and facilities for individuals who may be caring for parents or children needing long-term care. Mm-hmm. We also have to deal with employment. Most of the single mothers 
or faced with the lack of creating a living wage standard. They have transportation problems. Most of them depend on mass transportation. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of them are working on education because we know that the future uh, requires that they at least have a high school education. And then they run into uh, problems trying to earn living wages uh, because if they don't at least have that, you know, they're prohibited uh, from having a modest income. So income and wealth is very crucial. We have our eyes on it. We're trying to, um, we work with the group called Raise 15. Mm -hmm. Uh, A a lot of those people were single mothers working at different places that uh, were making a lot of money, but they were not willing to raise the um, salaries to a living wage. And a lot of people were working, you know, two jobs. And it's difficult trying to raise a family, let alone trying to take care of yourself. We partner with different organizations and try to help them rally to uh, make improvements for these families. So one of the the points that you touched upon is the, you know, dependency on different forms of public transportation to get folks, you know, to the resources that they need, whether that's employment, health care, et cetera. So, you know, kind of given that public transportation across the U.S. seems to be pretty limited to... Um, urban access how does that translate into families who live in more rural areas well again it creates another hardship Mm -hmm. if they don't have dependable uh, access to mass transportation there are days when they're not going to be able to get get to work therefore they will not be able to keep a job Mm -hmm. so um, it's a struggle yeah. It is. So whenever we hear that the city or, or, or the state is working on mass transportation, we try to go to the public hearings and make comments uh, as to how it affects people in the community. Uh, some people have an option to park their car and um, take advantage of mass transportation. Mm-hmm. And others don't. For example, myself, I live near a bus stop, but it's not within walking distance. Mm-hmm. So if it creates a problem for me, I know it creates some problems for the other mothers. So mass transportation to reach those areas is very crucial for them to survive. Well, and, you know, it just, I'm thinking about depending on the able-bodiedness of a person who is looking for access, that can certainly come into play with their ability let's say the bus stop is you know a five minute walk but if they're they do not have the able body to navigate that walk then they actually don't have access exactly so we have some vast improvements to be made to accommodate everyone so that they won't feel you know isolated because they don't have the same opportunities that others have. Mm-hmm. Uh, social environment is very important because they begin to have feelings of isolation, you know, from the bigger picture, disconnected from 
social support, so family, church, and then they have to deal with language barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, for some of them, the barrier may not be speaking English or not being able to understand what is written. So we have to consider all of that, um, you know, when we are working with, you know, everyone. Yeah, and so, you know, that actually brings me, you know, to my next point of, broadly speaking, the effects on black and brown mothers' ability to parent their young girls. And, you know, specifically, you know, like you touched upon the um, component of literacy, right? Like if they, if folks aren't able to understand the content and what some folks might deem to be basic documents, like yeah. like an apartment contract, um, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, looking at educational pathways, like what are some policies that really that you have seen have a significant impact on a mother's ability to parent their young girls within the context of school systems? Well, the community colleges right now are the best hope um, if, if the mothers can apply and uh, <clears throat> some of them are able to get faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there again, we have to make sure that they have transportation uh, to these places. But there are opportunities uh, that have improved. They've come a long way. Uh, the community colleges have special programs. And um, some of the four-year colleges have programs for people to attend in the evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, my alma mater, Shaw University, uh, they have what they call a CAPE program, and that's an educational program for adults, uh, an alternative program to the regular daytime classes. And that has helped a lot of people um, get their car- career, get the degrees that they need for their career. That's the program I went through actually. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, community colleges are such a powerful resource for communities. And they offer so many classes, mm-hmm. a lot more than they were offering when I went to school. So uh, uh, it would be hard for someone to go and not find their, you know, their nick, find what they really want to do. So, you know, kind of granulating down a bit within, you know, public education, you know, as young black and brown girls are moving through their young educational experience, what are some of the, like, have you seen some policies that affect the way that they are able to experience their educational pathways? Um, for the Young girls, yes, a lot of the high schools now have classes where they can get college credits. Okay. And that puts them ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they graduate from high school, they're already sometimes physically going to college campuses taking these classes so that when they do go, and enroll in the college um, plan, they are ahead of the game, and they have already established 
what they want to major in, and they take those credits with them. Mm-hmm. So that is um, an awesome opportunity for our young people to take advantage of. Now, I'm not in the school system, so I don't know if everyone is exposed to that, if they read the handbook, if they understand what's in the handbook, to know that they have those opportunities. Um, but in our NAACP, we make sure that all our youth know uh, of the different opportunities that are available for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, for internships, uh, lots of colleges offer internships um, for students, and we make sure that everyone that's on our email list, even the community organizations, um, are aware of the uh, advantage advantages that um, the students could have. Uh, which is what we're about. We develop partnerships between the community, community-based organizations, businesses, faith-based groups, and governmental agencies. We get the information out to those that perhaps may not have computers or, or may not be exposed uh, to the uh, newspaper every day to find out what's available. So we, we consider ourselves a uh, resource mm-hmm. um, to help the people improve their quality of life. We want to make sure that, you know, everybody has an equal opportunity um, to obtain full health and full educational potential. And no one is disadvantaged from achieving that potential because of their social position or any other socially defined circumstance. Mm -hmm. Um, We just do what we can to reach out to get information to them that would help better their lives. Yeah, that I mean that's it's really it's critical. And you know, one of the things that I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about is you know, earlier you touched upon the impact on family structures when policies are not built into the real narrative of needs if you could go into a little bit more depth about how uninformed policies have a deep effect on the family structures. Uninformed is dangerous uh, because people are locked in a uh, barrel. They're locked into a situation and sometimes they feel it's hopeless. Um, So that's why we try to expose them to everything that we are aware of because, uh, for example, the burden of disparities in health adversely affects our nation's children, business efficiency and competitiveness, economic strength, national security, um, the standing in the world and our national character and commitment to justice and fairness of opportunity. We have to help relieve those burdens and provide them with instruction and even guidance in reaching their potential and making um, their family situation a lot better, giving them a a, a great livelihood. Other opportunities is we have what we call a legislative day when we go to our legislature and we speak with our representatives to let them know exactly what families are going through. So we try to get minorities involved in policymaking situations locally, countywide and at the state level, go to the 
excuse me, go to these public hearings, mm-hmm. uh, go to the legislature, so that, you know, you put a, a real face there so that they will hopefully consider what the people they represent are going through and, you know, make laws to help them, not to crush them. Mm-hmm. So um, th- those are the type of things that we do. So did, that, did that address your question? It absolutely did. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Shifting gears a little bit, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the ways in which social myths impact legal segregation in communities. Well, that that could take all day, but I'll try to be <laughs> It's never changed. Uh, black and brown are looked upon as ignorant, different, strange, and people become frightened because of ignorance. Mm-hmm. For example, a lot of the families that call um, our office, they even have problems with their living arrangements. Some of them are, they have no choice but to live in um, places where <coughs> excuse me, there are chemicals in the house. They live near industrial polluted areas where the water is at risk and crime and safety issues. Uh, mm-hmm. All of that is, is a concern because they're usually in communities where they don't get the best of what regular citizens get. And um, it's going to take a long time to change that. Um, we're, we're often talking about living standards and, and landlords not taking care of tenants. It's, it's still on the top priority here in this area. I don't know about other areas. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, we, we really try to get people involved in that have, make policies that affect them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we try to, again, talk with the officials who do not see the needs of the people as priorities. That, that is a focus uh, of the NAACP. And we get local clergy to go with us, and uh, sometimes we have sororities and fraternities to go with us uh, on legislative day. Even mm-hmm. though the sororities and fraternities have their own day, of going mm-hmm. uh, to the legislature. Uh, some of them go with us and meet with the representatives because everybody is involved and it takes a community. Uh, our saying is we're better together. Mm-hmm. We're better. Mm-hmm. Another thing that affects black and brown mothers' ability to parent their young girls is um, the United States has a higher infant mortality rate than any of the other 27 wealthy countries. Hmm. Uh, half of all teenage births globally occur in just seven countries Bangladesh, Brazil, the Dominican Republic of the Congo, Ethiopia, India, Nigeria, and the United States. And one thing that um, we may or may not realize is that black women die at a higher rate giving birth, even adjusting for income. Hmm. Higher rates from cancer, CVD, et cetera, than, than white women. So, and black women earn less for every dollar that white men and white women earn. So, mm-hmm. the U.S. and county, you know, are more diverse 
um, culture. Culture shapes attitudes towards health and health care. Mm-hmm. Culture includes what? Race, ethnicity, primary language, uh, and also elements such as socioeconomic status, disability status. You, you mentioned earlier about walking to the bus stop. Mm-hmm. I typically can't walk to the bus stop. Also, whether one is from an urban community or a rural community. Uh, services that are not respectful and responsive to the individual different differences perpetuate and practice, I'm sorry, perpetuate preferred language and healthy literacy levels and communication needs of patients is really critical. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to be patient when um, we're dealing with someone that may not be as swift as we are in speaking English. They may not uh, be able to read what is written. Some people have a problem reading and some don't. So we have to be patient and make sure that there's someone working with those families to make sure that they understand, for example, a contract. I think you mentioned that early, mm-hmm. a living contract, buying a home. So we, we try to have classes and invite people in to come and talk about these things so that the community is aware of, for some, how easy it is to get a home if they, you know, know what they're doing, if they have a plan, Mm -hmm. if they follow a plan. So we try to do that to keep people informed so that they don't have to stay, you know, in a um, situation that's not uh, helping them progress. You know, systemic bias and policymaking really informs the ability of black and brown mothers to access equitable employment opportunities. So, you know, from where where you are sitting the work through the work that you do, what are some policy changes that to could decrease the discrimination in the workplace or acquiring work for black and brown women? I know, that's a very big question. That's a very, very big question. How would, how would I answer that? Again, I go back. I have to go back to fair wages. Mm-hmm. Increase the minimum wage in all categories, across the board. Mm-hmm. Not just city employees, but across the board. That's that's the type of changes that we need, fair wages laws. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how else to say that. Um, you know, North Carolina is not union-friendly. Right. So uh, we need unions that protect workers' rights. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are mistreated on the job. Can you believe that people are still called niggers on the job? Yes, unfortunately. And uh, this is what year? 2018? And um, management doesn't do anything about it. So a lot of people end up leaving their jobs, frustrated because they know if they retaliate, it will go on their record, you know, that they were difficult to work with. You know, Mm -hmm. not even a physical retaliation, just verbally standing up for themselves. They're labeled, you know, unemployable. 
So we need some laws that protect workers' rights. I don't know if North Carolina will ever get to that point, but we won't stop pushing for it. Going back to an earlier point about, you know, different types of stereotypes that that are broadly applied to different categories of identity. So you have a person who is being emotionally and, you know, mentally harmed in their work. Do you think that the stereotypes, like, let's say they did, you know, you have a black or brown mother that stands up for herself, and then what is the applied stereotype or a applied stereotype that might be given to her if she chooses to respond? Well, if she chooses to respond, again, she's going to be labeled as not a team player, uh, a chronic complainer, and uh, then they start looking back at job performances. And they, uh, we had one lady that said that she was doing a good job, but when she uh, raised the issue that she was being discriminated, that uh, she wasn't given the same opportunities as others, um, she was fired. And they went back to say that her work did not measure up. All of a sudden, her work did not measure up. So a lot of games are played um, in the employment world. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we need policies that make it possible for all, not just women, you know, to have respect on the job. Mm-hmm. Because we see men and women that are affected by these unfair rulings. Supervisors can just do and say what they want. And... Um, the employee has to take it. That's very difficult for some of the younger generation. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, I'm not having it. I'm human. My life matters just as well as yours. I, you know, I'm not going to take the disrespect. Mm-hmm. And when they walk off, you know, then they have a financial problem. But, mm-hmm. you know, people have to choose to do what's best for them because if, if they stay and remain on the on the job, you know. Yeah, I think that one of the things that has come up quite a bit through conversations within this podcast has been, you know, the different ways that different folks communicate for, Mm -hmm. you know, their own self-expression. That certain ways of expressing, you know, if you get too loud that you're stereotyped as a certain way. If you, you know, push back on unfair policies, then, as you said, you know, you're deemed to be a troublemaker, a complainer. Um, Yes. And so, you know, what I'm hearing, uh, you know, you say through your narrative is there really needs to be a lot more work done at the systemic level to create a safer space and, you know, not just in the physical term, but, you know, for folks to sustain that equitable status of employment. Mm -hmm. One of the things that came to mind when I was thinking through 
our conversation, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, it speaks to the effects that mass incarceration of men and boys of color have on families. But, mm-hmm. but then one of the things that, you know, I wanted to kind of pick your brain about is how might you describe the ways in which mass incarceration of black and brown bodies is disenfranchising women of color from having a voice in their child's lived experience? Michelle Alexander um, really spoke the truth there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was probably shocking to a lot of people, but she told the truth. Uh, for example... Um, in that report, it says, according to the American Public Health Association, the largest, the U.S. justice system is terrible for health, and children and minority families are particularly impacted. Uh, the video calls for reforming jail sentences for nonviolent offenses, mm-hmm. citing a 2014 California statute, Proposition 47, as an example. The law requires misdemeanor sentencing for specific drug and property offenses instead of felony sentences. Mm-hmm. Sentence. So we're still judged by, by the color of our skin. George Benjamin stated that every year in prison takes two years off your life expectancy. Mm-hmm. It's devastating for the health of families and communities. Half of all people in prison are parents. Mm-hmm. Babies are far more likely to die before their first birthday. Hmm. How about um, and one part of that video it says um, um, with health and justice for all. A serious message about the impact of the school to prison pipeline is explored. Mm-hmm. The US prison population has soared with more than 2.3 million Americans incarcerated. And of these individuals, 60% of prisoners are minorities, mostly Mm -hmm. black and brown. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. I remember when I did my dissertation, um, I, I don't recall the statistics, but... A lot of the statistics show that if a parent is incarcerated, it is highly likely that the kids will be incarcerated. Hmm. And we need to break that cycle. We need to break that cycle. That's why I'm in the school system a lot, fighting for our children who are being um, mistreated, uh, whether it's bullying from the students or the teachers. And yes, I'll say that on record. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if that child keeps getting expelled, he's, he's reporting the bullying, and nothing is done about it, then in the hallway, if he reacts and smacks the bully, then he's the one expelled. Mm-hmm. Even though that child has been telling the teachers that they're being bullied. They, they very seldom go home and tell the parents until, you know, gets into an altercation. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, we, we try to train parents to learn to speak up, uh, learn to watch for signs of the child changing their character, their, their attitude, their eating habits even, mm-hmm. and have a conversation. And we also teach parents how to advocate for their children. Um, 
when I met with the a new superintendent of Wake County Public Schools last week, I told her that my heart aches because I see families that have to go out, beg for a lawyer to help them pro bono, or use their hard-earned money to hire a lawyer for their children to have an equality education. Mm-hmm. That is crazy. It should not be happening. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm constantly saying the diversity training needs to step up. I know we have a lot of schools here, just in Wake County. Mm-hmm. Diversity training, how to deal with our youth, how to deal with our children, how to recognize the cultural diversities. Mm-hmm. Um, let's work on that. Let's work on that. And even when we encourage people to go vote, they have to put up with some of the workers saying, oh, you're not, you got a funny name and laughing. And, and, and I find it hard that adults stop, don't realize that when they say things like that, that that's hurtful. Mm-hmm. That, that's discrimination. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we have to stop and think. Be sensitive to what we say. It, it, it can crush, and again, it can cause people to explode in the wrong manner. Mm-hmm. So, um, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> yes. Uh... Cultural diversity cannot be taken lightly. So, the, the Wake County school system did do a fantastic thing. They hired... Uh, some people uh, in the department, I think it's called Equity Affairs. Mm-hmm. And they go into the school system and train principals, teachers, staff, you know, how to work with uh, cultural differences. Mm-hmm. But again, it's a lot of schools to reach. So I, I can say that North uh, Wake County is on the right track. They realized it was a problem. Uh, because I think it was 2010 is when the NAACP and other agencies sued the Wake County Public School uh, because we had families that had proven that the school system was implementing a school-to-prison pipeline. Now, nothing has happened with that lawsuit. They've come back and interviewed us and other parents to see what has changed. And uh, we're not giving hope. I, you know, we have hope that one day somebody will look at that and not just tease us with an update and more questions and actually give some recommendations as to how they see that we can make improvements, how they can help uh, the community and the schools uh, learn accountability. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I feel like that one of the points that has really stood out is that cultural, you know, raising cultural intelligence of folks is critical. And, you know, in and it's critical in so many ways, including but not limited to how we engage students in conversations 
you know, mm-hmm. how we engage students who are experiencing discomfort in their classroom spaces and to not dismiss it. Exactly. So I I agree, and I, I hope that, you know, Wake County will continue the work, and I hope that other counties, I live in Alamance County, I hope that, mm-hmm. you know, Alamance County could certainly use, you know, that type of integrated education, looking where's the money coming from, you know, and so who's holding that piggy bank? Um, but that, like you said, that's a, that's one of the ones, whole nother conversation. (laughs) And and you just reminded me that uh, as an advocacy group, when there are public hearings, um, with, um, the Wake County School Board, as well as the county commissioners who help fund our schools. Uh, we go and speak out and uh, let them know that we need more social workers, someone that can understand all of our youth, all, all black, brown, white, whatever. They all, some of them have communication issues or behavioral issues. Mm-hmm. And we, we can't just cast them aside. Uh, we need programs and we need staff there that's trained to handle those behavioral issues. Mm-hmm. Not to jack them up and throw them out of the classroom. What does that benefit? Mm-hmm. They all need to be able to learn how to function as best they can when they become adults. Mm-hmm. One conversation I had, someone mentioned, you know, we need to look at decreasing the amount of SROs and increasing the amount of MSWs? Well, we had that conversation with the former Wake County superintendent. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't had the opportunity to have the conversation with the newly hired superintendent Moore. And a lot of us expressed that we don't want SROs in the school. Because then some of them are not properly trained mm-hmm. to handle behavioral issues, and and uh, lots of times they were grabbing the kid that that was not really doing the bullying, um, and um, the previous superintendent said that he was meeting with uh, on a regular basis with a group of students that wanted to keep the SROs, said that they felt safer with them in the school. Well. I'm thinking that that might have been because we had so much uh, gun violence going on. People were attacking the schools. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 to me, I don't, I didn't see the report, but I don't think it meant that uh, that they were more comfortable because they were there to keep the kids from beating on them and retaliating. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't think that that was the reason. So um, we are looking at SROs. Um, we plan to meet with the new sheriff that was elected here mm-hmm. uh, in Wake County. Congratulations, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes, hallelujah. Mm-hmm. And uh, to see, you know, what his take is on SRO. I don't know if he wants to keep them or not. I want to find out face-to-face how he feels about that. Uh, if he's going to keep them, what type of training? The training must move to another level. Because a lot of parents 
have horror stories about SROs. And um, someone needs to take a look at that. Mm-hmm. Because there again, it pushes kids to the street. They don't want to go to school. There was one parent I talked with, her son was accused of stealing. They searched him. They didn't find anything. But yet, he was watched by the teachers and the students. He was labeled a thief. And after a while, the kid was like, I don't want to go to this school anymore. Mm-hmm. They, they hurt me. I don't feel comfortable there. They're out to get me. So you create create all types of emotional problems when things are not handled properly. And I always say, if you don't know how to treat the children, then you don't need this job. Mm -hmm. I have a problem with mistreating children, no matter what race they are. These are God's precious jewels. I'm a former youth minister, you see. So Mm -hmm. I get very upset Mm -hmm. (laughs) when people mishandle children. Mm -hmm. You crush their spirits. You call them emotional problems that they didn't have before. Uh, And parents shouldn't have to go pay money for um, psychological counseling because of of something that happened in the school. That is crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. They should be improving issues that the kids have when they get there, not creating them. And we better move on because I, I do have a problem with mistreating you. I have one last point to kind of end cap our discussion. Um, yes, you know, the as I mentioned, the theme of this podcast is learning, lifting, and leading social equity for and by black and brown girls and women. And that is aligned with the 33rd Women's Conference that took place at Shaw University in Raleigh on October 20th. Could you make a few suggestions about how black and brown girls and women can be learning, lifting, and leading to bring about social equity? Yes, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) One is vote. I am an advocate for voter education. We can no longer allow people to just show up to the polls, Mm -hmm. not understanding the issues that are going to be on the ballot. So we we have sessions to, to teach people how to vote, encourage them to vote, and encourage them to look at the issues that affect their lives daily so that they can make an informed decision when they go to the polls. Um, We also want people to know not to accept complacency. Complacency is a Mm -hmm. no-no. We we tell them to get involved with others who have the same concerns. For example, uh, a grassroots organization uh, that's doing work of making a change for the better. Bias, but I think the best organization to, to get involved in is the NAACP because we are interested and involved in making a difference. We've been around for 109 years, so we have results. Another thing that we try to tell the youth and the parents is if they see something, say something. If you have a problem in your community, 
you need to say something to the elected officials in your area, to the government agency that's responsible for creating a change in your community, in your life, or your church. Get your church involved in advocacy. Get involved. And uh, a lot of people saying that we're having too many advocacy groups jumping up, but I'm kind of partial to that. Um, for example, you know, the youth that started the, um, the movement uh, uh, against gun violence, mm-hmm. they're, they're making a name for themselves across, the, you know, the nation. Mm-hmm. They stay within their community. They have a national movement. Um, so I say to people, if you believe you can make a difference, Hey, you may want to start a grassroots organization yourself. For example, the Me Too movement, remember, um, that focus on ending uh, sexual violence, you know, perpetrated by powerful men against women. Mm-hmm. That was by one black woman mm-hmm. who was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm-hmm. Now, all across the nation, one woman, one black woman that probably felt no one wanted to hear what happened to her, felt that no one cared, and just got sick and tired of it and started a movement. Look at the Me Too movement. Lots of people are taking credit for it, but that was one individual that realized that she could make a difference, and she did. And I think I said earlier that NAACP is all about partnering. Now, we have a limit. We have to partner with organizations that are non-profit profit, because we have a 501c3. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we, we partner with like-minded organizations that advocate for the same thing that we advocate for. So I would encourage advocacy groups um, to support each other. Um, we can no longer focus attention on what we've done um, what we've had, what we have, but we must focus on what we have that can help each other. Building coalitions, that's what we do, and we get good results. That's it. Those are very powerful statements, and uh, you know, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad I could help. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women with our guest, Reverend Dr. Portia Rochelle, President of the Raleigh Apex NAACP and Local Clergy. Special thanks for this podcast go to Shaw University, Elon University, and the Raleigh Apex branch of the NAACP for supporting this important work.